I'm Dean Olsher, and this is The Really Big Questions. It's the podcast that asks really big questions, and today we want to know what does it mean to be an adult? Research shows that how we define adulthood has changed in recent years. Psychologist Jeffrey Jensen Arnett, who we're going to be hearing from later, says historically almost all cultures defined adulthood through marriage, and today, not so much. In a national survey asking which of 40 criteria are most important for adulthood, Arnett finds a different answer. Marriage consistently ends up near rock bottom. How are we redefining adulthood? TRBQ producer Flora Lichtman investigates. I'm out pounding the pavement to see if my neighbors can help us think through our big question du jour. What does it mean to be an adult? Uh, That's something I've been thinking about a lot, actually. For me, I think it's, uh, do I feel like I've developed myself enough as a person? I don't really know yet, because I'm not an adult myself. How old are you? I'm 18. I'm not an adult yet. I still think I'm a kid. I'm 65. What does it mean to be an adult, to be responsible? Being responsible. Independent, responsible, and respectful. That last answer, being independent and responsible, is pretty representative of what most people in America think. So says Jeffrey Jensen Arnett, a psychology professor at Clark University in Worcester, Mass., and co-author of Getting to 30. And he would know. I've been doing research on this question for 20 years now, and I've found remarkable consistency in how people think about adulthood and how they conceptualize it across ages, across genders, across social class groups, across ethnic groups. The top three, I I call them the big three now, are accepting responsibility for yourself, making independent decisions, and becoming financially independent. Those are remarkably consistent across many studies by now. You've tracked in the last 20 years, I think, a real change in how people have conceived of adulthood. I mean, we hear a lot about the millennial generation bucking norms for adulthood, right? Mm -hmm. Pushing back these traditional markers. Yeah. 20 years ago, the median marriage age was three or four years earlier than it is now. And the same with the median age of entering parenthood. And I was pointing at the time to how higher education had had expanded so much. And that was another thing that seemed to make adulthood later. Well, by now it's expanded far more, making even more there's a period of emerging adulthood, as I call it, in between adolescence and young adulthood. It's really a distinct life stage now, I think. You've argued that this time period, it's basically the 20s, right? Yeah, basically. Is this new stage of life called emerging adulthood. And I was curious, how does that fit in with biology. When we think about stages of life, are they constructs that we impose on our life, or is there some biological underpinning? How do those two things fit together? That's a question that some scholars have raised about my theory and about my ideas. They've said, wait a minute, stages have to be universal. They have to take place for everyone everywhere, and they also have to be uniform. Because that's traditionally how we thought about stages. I mean, Freud's stages of psychosexual development in childhood and Erickson's stages of the lifespan, Piaget's stages of cognitive development, they all were proposed to be universal and biologically based. But what I've argued is that they were all wrong. I mean, we all recognize that they vastly overstated 
the universality of their theories based on very small local samples. What I'm arguing is that stages are useful as long as you don't claim that they're universal because they almost never are. Infancy is about the one life stage, I think you can say, is really biologically based. You can't walk and you can't talk for the first year of life. That's true everywhere. But all the other ones, I think they're frameworks that we use to understand our development. And I think once you understand them as social constructions, then emerging adulthood makes sense as life stage for our time. One of the adulthood themes we keep hearing about are 20-somethings moving back home with their parents, often for financial reasons. And one of Arnett's most interesting findings is that parents seem to be kind of happy about this. Yeah, you know, it's remarkable how happy they are because we have this sort of cultural narrative, if you will, in American society that parents can't wait for their kids to leave. And if the kids do come back in their 20s, then the parents are saying, oh, no, how could this happen? When are you moving out again? It's funny how common that is, is a cultural narrative. And it's funny, especially because it bears almost no relation to reality. I'm cleaning up. No, 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 please. The Goonan family in Marine Park, Brooklyn, makes the point. They graciously let me join Sunday night dinner last summer. It's a weekly family ritual. Usually we have several people of her brother, my sister, my brother. That's Bill Goonan. He's married to Marion, and their daughter Danielle is here too. Sometimes we try to get her to make something other than meat sauce. Danielle, 29, has a job at a high-power foundation. She's lived alone before, doing a Fulbright in Italy and graduate studies at the London School of Economics. But when she landed a job in New York, she decided to live at home seemingly very much by choice. I like my parents. When I was at school, I spoke to my mother every single day. I had friends who didn't speak to their parents for months on end at college. And for me, that was like the weirdest thing, right? It's just, it's how you're raised, I guess. You know, I think if you, I think it makes a lot of sense if you get along with your parents and you think you have We're an Italian-American family. It's normal to live at home until you're married with your parents. My mother did it, he did it. So it's interesting when like you go on a date with a guy who's whatever, a yuppie, a hipster, someone who's you know, all those lovely terms for people who have moved into Brooklyn who don't ne- weren't necessarily born and raised here, and they're like, oh, you live at home, and, like, they give you a face. But in our culture, which, yes, is different from your culture, that's okay, that's acceptable. Our families are close. But this isn't just about feeling connected. It's also about saving money, something Danielle became acutely aware of after her dad was seriously injured on the job when she was a kid. We were on food stamps. We went from being up, I would say, middle class. When you worked for the corporation, I think we were, like, upper middle class. Right, you had the Volvo, you had the house, and then all of a sudden she's driving other neighborhoods to buy for food with food stamps because she's embarrassed. Volkswagen. <laughs> Not that a Volkswagen is a bad right? car. I we mean, had to get rid of it. It was like, no more Because income, he got probably. hurt. So I'm saving more than 20% of my paycheck, and then I spend another $500 a month paying off education loans. And I'm able to do that because I live at home. Not that there aren't negotiations. When I moved back, it was different in the sense that Technically, I'm an adult. It's my parents' house. So you have to sort of, like, rewrite the rules in a sense. I'm, like, kind of a, believe it or not, I'm a little bit of a neat freak. Yeah, he is a little freak. Bit. And oh. my wife really is not a neat freak. Uh-uh. And Danielle is a total disaster. So it kind of, like, goes down, down a line here. So, <laughs> so how do Bill and Marion like having Danielle around? I love having <laughs> her around. That is like, let me think when about that. <laughs> she, she tends to, um, you know... She's drinking my wine. (laughs) 
Don't put in until I'm done. Okay, I won't put in until you're done. <laughs> I know. Yesterday I tell her, I walked down the steps, and I was like, we got a pool, and I get it, building a deck, and I'm all excited. And I said, I went to BJ's, and I bought those disinfectant wipes to wipe off the table. And she went, you went to BJ's. You know they're not good. I did not say it like that. Yes, you did. No, I definitely did not See, say it But this it like is that. where now we can sit here for 20 minutes and, and argue. Because I was just like, oh, you went to BJ's. So to answer your question... Outside of what you see going on right now, I love having Danielle home. But listening to the arguments, really not my best part. And this assessment matches up pretty well with Arnett's data. In national surveys, Arnett has asked parents whether having their young adult at home is positive, negative, or a mix. Now, I thought most people would say it's a mix of positive and negative. Right. Because really, isn't living with just about anybody a mix of positive <laughs> and negative? There are compromises, no matter what. Exactly. And, but... Remarkably, 61% of parents said it was mostly positive. Only 6% said it was mostly negative. So a majority were positive, even though many parents also acknowledged some additional burdens. They worry more. They are financially impacted. But in spite of that, it's basically a very positive experience. The emerging adults basically say the same thing. They appreciate their parents' support. They like their parents. Now compare that with how Bill Goonan describes his relationship with his parents. I never asked my father for anything. You, you wouldn't dare, <laughs> you know? And when you sat at the table, he ate first. He took what he wanted and you took what was left. And that's how it was, you know? Our generation, you know, we want the kids to have much more than we had and we're willing to give up our life for it, which is not good. And unfortunately, most of us don't realize that till we get up to in our 50s and we say, you know what, we screwed up a little bit. Just, I would have made them work for more things and, and earn more things and not have that, you know, well, I had it so hard, I'm going to make it so easy for them. Even though I worked a there's lot, a lot though. of people that are, that, that are a lot worse work. than us, I believe, because I've seen it. But uh, I would do a little things different. And that brings up a question about Arnett's theory. Does this emerging adulthood stage that Arnett is proposing only apply to kids whose parents can support them? So I wonder if, it, you know, what role privilege plays. Mm -hmm. If you have more money, just to put it bluntly, yeah. to get education, to explore, because you don't necessarily have to immediately get a job or provide for your family, and you can, you have the luxury of thinking about identity in a different way. Yeah, I think so too. And no doubt you do. No doubt it makes a lot of difference what kind of opportunities you have for self-exploration in your 20s, depending on how much your parents can back you up financially. But here's the interesting thing. I, I mentioned I did this national survey of 18 to 29-year-olds, the Clark University Poll of Emerging Adults. And on that survey, I had this question, this is a time of my life for finding out who I really am. Well, about 80% of them agreed with that statement. And there was no social class difference. 80% of the emerging adults, these 80% of the 18 to 29-year-olds, yeah. Here's another one. And this is something that has really been striking to me for the whole 20 years I've been studying it, is how optimistic they are. So this was one of the survey items on that Clark poll. I am confident that eventually I will get what I want out of life. 89%. I agree with that statement. I'm confident that eventually I will get what I want out of life. Wow, 9 out of 10 are confident. And there's no social class difference. There's no ethnic difference. It's 
it's remarkable that even though the 20s are a struggle, almost everybody believes that eventually life is going to smile on them. I wonder how that changes with adulthood onset. Well, I'll tell you, I now know. I just finished this latest Clark poll. It's 25 to 39-year-olds. Because I've always wondered, what, what happens to those to those big dreams, does the bubble get popped? I mean, of course the bubble gets popped. Who does get what they want out of life? <laughs> right? I mean, by by the time you're in your 50s or 60s, I think everybody will say, well, I got some things I want out of life, but not everything. As it turns out, they're almost as optimistic in the 30s as they are in the 20s. It's not quite as high. It's, it's more like 80% than 90%. But they still overwhelmingly agree with that statement. I am confident that eventually I will get what I want out of life. So when does the bubble burst? I have no idea. (laughs) I think maybe Americans are just pretty resilient in their optimism and inclined to see the bright side and to believe that better days are ahead, even if uh, their current lives are not quite what they want them to be. That was Jeffrey Jensen Arnett research professor of psychology at Clark University and author with Elizabeth Fischel of Getting to 30, A Parent's Guide to the 20-something Years. You can find many more big questions on our website, trbq.org. Catch up with us on Twitter and on Facebook, and that's a good place where you can ask us your really big question. This podcast was produced by Flora Lichtman. The Really Big Questions is a project of Sound Vision Productions with funding from the National Science Foundation. I'm Dean Olsher. 